Hello and welcome to The Corporate Athlete, episode four. I'm Rachel Findler, and today we're talking mindfulness. Now, when you think of an athlete, you think of someone who's incredibly fit and physically strong. But when I interview Carl Smain, who's the world halfpipe champion, and Raina Barkard, who's the free ride world champion, they both told me that being an athlete is 80% mental and 20% physical. Now, we all know that athletes have an intense training regime, but if that's only 20% of it, then they must have the same for their mental health. Can you imagine training for one event your entire life, something like the Olympics, and on the day you choke because you can't handle the pressure? It doesn't matter how much physical training and practice you've done, if you can't deal with the pressure on the day, you're not going to get the gold medal or podium finish that you hoped for. So these athletes have to have a tool like mindfulness to help them deal with these circumstances. Now as a professional extreme skier, I feel like I was kind of forced into mindfulness. You know, being out in the environment, the conditions are changing all the time in the mountains. One minute is beautiful blue skies and the next minute is snowing so hard you can't see more than a foot in front of you and you have to hunker down for a few hours and maybe sometimes even overnight. So rather than getting pissed off about the situation, I just accepted it for what it was. And this then rolled over into my internal process as well. You know, if I was really fatigued and I couldn't go training or skiing, like, you know, rather than getting so upset and mad about it, I just accepted it for what it was and embraced the day off and finally catching up on Netflix. <laughs> but this is just the same in the business world as well. You know, the environment is constantly changing, your industry is changing, the economy is changing, Brexit is happening. So we can either choose to resist all these changes and get frustrated and annoyed by them and basically fail in the end, or we can accept the environmental changes around us, adapt with them and survive and thrive. And mindfulness is something that will really help you succeed at that. And not to mention all the other benefits, it's gonna help you become more empathetic, it's gonna reduce your stress levels, which for me already has just sold me on mindfulness. If you can reduce any stress in your life, then of course you're going to do it. At Youth Thrive, we don't just do corporate wellbeing programs, we also have adventure-filled retreats. And this winter, we are in for a serious treat. We have some of the biggest skiers in the world coming to join us. We have absolute legend Ian McIntosh, professional big mountain skier. He's in all the TGR films and in any magazine that you open up. We also have Raina Barkard, who's the Freeride World Tour champion, and Jackie Peso, who's the Extreme Verbier champion. Now, Jackie and Raina are taking a week off the Freeride World Tour just to come join us and ski with us. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You'll never get a chance to ski with these guys again. Now, during these retreats, we're going to obviously focus on your skiing technique, but we're really going to get into the athlete psyche and the athlete mentality. We're going to increase your confidence, going to give you positive thinking. We're going to help you overcome fear because sometimes when we want to progress, it's not necessarily a physical problem that's stopping us. It's an internal block and you'll be able to pick the brains and the minds of these incredible athletes and learn the tools and techniques that they use to get where they are today, being the number ones and the world champions. So for more information, go to the You Thrive website, that's you, the letter U, thrive, ltd.com, forward slash ski dash retreats. That's you thrive, ltd.com, forward slash ski dash retreats. And you can also find us on Facebook, um, You Thrive LTD, or you can find me on LinkedIn, Rachel Findler. I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. So when I wanted to talk about mindfulness, I naturally went looking for one of the top gurus in the world, and that is Michael Chaskelson. 
His company, Mindfulness Works, helps implement mindfulness into the workplace, and he has worked with some of the top CEOs and top level managers in the world. Now, I know after listening to this, you're going to want to learn more about mindfulness, so he's got some books you can check out to learn more and dive more into this. The Mindful, sorry, the Mindful Workplace, Mindfulness in Eight Weeks, Mind Time, and Mindfulness for Coaches are all fantastic books that Michael has authored that you can check out. And also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars and leave us a review. And if you have any questions or comments, you can find me on LinkedIn at Rachel Findler on LinkedIn there. Okay, so I'm going to hand this over to Michael and let him explain to you what mindfulness is and why it is so awesome and so many people are doing it. So Michael, maybe if we could just start by maybe telling us what mindfulness is, because a lot of people seem to think they know what mindfulness is, but maybe they're not familiar with the, with the actual definition. Okay, thanks for that, Rachel, because there's a, there's a lot of confusion around mindfulness these days. Um, when I first started practicing it back in the 70s in Buddhist contexts, um, you know, it was very much an outcome of meditation. It was a Buddhist term with a very specific set of Buddhist meanings. Um, you know, quite a precise Buddhist psychology behind it. In the 70s, it became secularized and used in medical contexts, started to be researched. And the research created a wave of popularity because we were able to show the outcomes that you could get if you practiced mindfulness meditation regularly. So that led to an interest in mindfulness as such. And subsequently I think a huge confusion. So we've got things like a mindfulness colouring book on the one hand and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression on the other hand. What links these two? Not a heck of a lot actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you know mindfulness colouring books and mindful knitting and that kind of thing is great. I certainly don't want to uh, put it down in any way or diss it in any way it has a real value to help people to focus a little bit to help them to calm a little bit nothing wrong with focus and calm these are great things but mindfulness as such is not about focus and calm uh, the things that the mechanisms that bring about the fabulous changes we see when we say that for example people who engage in eight weeks of mindfulness training experience a substantial reduction in their experience of relapsing depression, for example. Whereas before the eight weeks of training, they had a greater than 75% chance of relapse. After the training, that's less than 35%. It's at least as effective as maintenance doses of antidepressants. Uh, it's rolled out by the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence. That's not because they're getting the same thing you would get from colouring in a pattern attentively. They're learning a different set of skills. So there's a significant difference. Okay. okay. So that's a bit wordy. Um, I can keep going with that if that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. Um, so what are the differences? Uh, there are three, I would say, key outcomes that people learn with mindfulness training. They learn the skill of allowing, of letting what is the case be the case right now. Uh, that means 
are letting themselves be who they are, letting this moment be what it is, letting others be who they are, letting the context, the situation be what it is. Here we are. It's like this. Now what? It's like this. Now what? That opens up choice. If you can't allow what is the case to be the case, then you're stuck. You're stuck in a, it shouldn't be like this. I don't want it like this. Why are they like that in an organizational environment? If only that person wasn't on my team, it would all be okay. But it's not like that. It's constant resistance. Exactly. Resisting the moment. But mm. the moment is what it is. The question is, how are you going to be with it? What are you going to do about it? That's a different question. But mm. you have to first accept it. And that includes accepting yourself, not being self-critical, not being so judgmental. It means being more kind to others, a bit more compassionate, a bit more allowing, letting them be who they are, and so on. So allowing is a big outcome. That's the A bit of what we call AIM, allowing, inquiry, and matter awareness. Second bit, inquiry, means taking an active, open interest in what's going on right now. So real present moment focus, real curiosity. What's here now? What's this moment like now in me? What am I experiencing in my own body and my thinking? What are other people experiencing? What's their experience like? What's happening in the world around me right now? What's happening in the system, in the environment? What's changing? What's moving? What's it like? So that inquiry piece is the second major outcome. Third major outcome is what we call meta-awareness. Meta-awareness is the ability to step back ever so slightly from your experience, uh, from your thoughts, feelings, sensations, impulses, and see them as just that. Just a flow of thoughts, feelings, sensations, impulses. To be able to step back and observe, oh right, that's just a thought, rather than being in the thought. And the ability to come away from being lost in thinking, to step out of the drama of your thinking and feeling in this moment, and to see, oh yeah, I'm just doing my drama here. So when you're a little anxious, seeing that, hang on, these are just anxious thoughts, they're just anxious feelings, this isn't necessarily a description of reality. Mm, I can imagine people attach stories exactly. to their thoughts. We all do all the time. We get lost in the drama of our thinking and feeling. We really do. I mean, this is the human condition. Mm. So it's not just, I'm tired. It's, I'm tired because yesterday, blah, 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 and last week, and I shouldn't have had that wine last night, rather than just observing, I'm tired. Exactly that. And with that can often come a bunch of blame and accusation, mm. and criticism, regret, all of which can be desperately unhelpful mm. in the moment. So being able just to see what's going on for what it is, it's kind of stepping back. There's one of the examples I sometimes give is the experience of irritability, irritation, when you're, say, on a commute. So, you know, maybe you're in London, in the Russia, 5.30 it's hot, it's smelly down there, it's really crowded. There's a person pushing their backpack into your face on the front of you. There's another person behind you shoving you towards the backpack and you're sitting there 
rigid with tension and going, I can't stand this, I'm so cross, this is intolerable, why do we have to put up with this, etc, etc, etc. And you're running a whole story about the ridiculousness of the London transport system and how absurd it is for you to have chosen to work in London and why, etc, etc, etc. So that's one mode of mind, just being lost in irritation. Another mode of mind is going, oh, I'm having such irritable thoughts. Wow, my shoulders are really tight. That slight stepping back, noticing that these are just irritable thoughts and feelings, they're not a readout of reality. After all, you've chosen to live in this vibrant city, you love it here, you know, it's okay. Uh, that shift is what we call meta-awareness, and that's a big outcome of mindfulness training. So allowing inquiry, meta-awareness, you don't get that from colouring in a pattern. Uh, there's a significant difference. And that's what is lost, I think, in the current enthusiasm for all things mindfulness. Um, it's, it's become a kind of buzzword for a kind of Zen lifestyle attitude, which bears no relation either to its earlier Buddhist context or its later medical clinical applications uh, and it's the clinical applications and the research on the clinical applications that's driven the popularity that's made it okay for me to go to organizations and say hey look this is not a matter of opinion anymore this is not a matter of religious faith anymore I'm not talking science especially I can talk neuroscience and brain state changes which are measurable with people engage in mindfulness practice over time yeah, the science behind mindfulness has, you know, thankfully grown so much. We've been so lucky to have all these research programs go on. And, and you yourself have done some research with leadership and mindfulness. Yes. So we recruited a number of senior business leaders at a, at a business school. We uh, gave them eight weeks of mindfulness training. We call that our mindful leader program. And they learned formal meditation practices, mindfulness meditation practices. They learned how some of the outcomes of that and what they were engaging in related to their leadership practice. And we measured them after the training, compared them with a, with, with a control group. So we looked at what changed. We also gathered a huge amount of um, data from asking them to talk about in small groups what their experience was, what the experience of their leadership challenges were as they were doing the course, what they were learning as they were doing the course, the obstacles they were finding as they were doing it. We transcribed all of that, meticulously coded it over 300 odd different codes, crunched all our data. And that told us that eight weeks of mindfulness training made them more resilient, increased their capacity to collaborate with others, and enabled them better to manage uh, the and stay agile in the complex conditions that they were called upon to lead in. Those are huge leadership skills to improve on and just within eight weeks as well. Absolutely. And so how much time did they have to commit during these eight weeks to achieve those results? Well, they, they came to the business school, to Ashridge, um, four times, so three half days and one full day over eight weeks. And we asked them to meditate every day and do other mindfulness practices 
for, uh, I think we asked them to do 20 minutes a day. What we found is that they didn't. Is <laughs> <laughs> this uh, one of the obstacles then? Was well, it? <laughs> sort of, sort of, sort of. But what, we, what, what was really interesting was that we found if they did 10 minutes or more every day, then they got a substantial change. Uh, if they didn't do as much as 10 minutes each day, they didn't get much change. Mm. So we found the break point was around 10 minutes. Those who did 10 minutes or more of mindfulness practice every day began to experience really significant change. And the more they did, the more they changed. So the, it's not a big ask, really. You're, you're mm. talking about, as it happens, less than 1% of their waking hours. And it's a small trade-off isn't it you know 10 minutes of your time for huge results like that yes yeah it, it, I mean it when you start to think of it in those terms it's a no-brainer there is initial resistance I mean for, for many many people will say look finding 10 minutes how could I find 10 minutes in my schedule I'm back to back all the time the truth is that actually there is there is the time nobody can't find 10 minutes it's just a matter of prioritizing it and sticking with it and then actually also working with the resistance that you find in yourself and that's the big one because what we ask people to do when they engage in mindfulness meditation is to look at their minds rather than through their minds so we spend most of our time just looking through our minds the world that we experience comes at us through our minds and we take it well this is what it is but in fact it's our minds are constantly shaping the world we're experiencing and when we look at the mind directly, turn the lens through 90 degrees and begin to look at ourselves, look inward and see how our minds work, for many people that can be a little uncomfortable at first. It can be a little strange. They can find their minds are very busy. Um, they can discover what they're actually thinking and feeling. And some of that can be a bit uncomfortable. Um, the sheer volume of stuff going on in that can feel a bit overwhelming at times. So a big part of the course is to continually encourage people to be okay with what they're finding when they look at their own minds. I can imagine that's in hugely intimidating for a lot of people to do. And last night I was talking at the Mindfulness Society and one of the gentlemen that was there came up to me afterwards and he said, as soon as you said we were going to do a body scan and we were going to look at our bodies, he said, I wanted to get up and run. He said, I never want to look inward. He said, I started feeling sick in my stomach. Yes. And I said, is this one of the first times you've done this? And he said, yeah, it was you know, probably, probably done it a few times before. Yeah. Um, so is it just encouraging people to stick with it? Um, but I suppose that comes in with the judgment aspect, does it? You know, not to judge yourself. It's okay to feel like that. It's okay to feel like that. But this is part of the skill of mindfulness teaching. So in, in the world I inhabit, which began with my doing a, a master's in the clinical applications of mindfulness, there's a lot of very careful training around teaching how to work with issues like that because sometimes you know you, you you're, you're treading on you can tread on vulnerabilities mm, open a can of worms you can open a can of worms so how do you work with people who are suddenly confronted with their an experience they've been shying away from gently 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 
enable and encourage them to begin the process of exploring what it is they've been avoiding and, and, and to hold them in that process, encourage them with kindness and allowing, but recognising just how intimidating this can be for some people. Mm-hmm. Probably the large majority of people find this is fine. It can be a bit uncomfortable, but it's fine. And there are going to be some people for whom it's, oh, hang on, I don't go there. Uh, and, and that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. That's where you've got to be quite cautious. And it's amazing having support, like through the mindfulness training, knowing that someone is there to support and guide you and teach you these things that you have the tools to use yourself. Absolutely. To do it on your own would be very intimidating and um, possibly not the best idea as well. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I guess people would just then, by and large, go, actually, I'm not going there. Mm. You know, this doesn't feel right for me, I'm not going there. Something I, I encounter a lot when I work in organisations is, I can't do this. Why can't you do it? Because my mind's too busy. Yeah, but that's fine, actually. The idea is to just sit with your busy mind. It's okay. Oh, right, okay. But actually, I can't do this. Why can't you do it? Because my mind's too busy, I can't stop my thoughts. Yeah, I heard. Um, and actually, what we're trying to do here is sit with our minds, allow our our thoughts to be as they are. We're not trying to stop our thoughts. Oh, right, yeah. But I can't do this thing, Michael. Why can't you do it? Because my mind's so busy, I can't stop my thoughts. It, there's just a meme in the culture that somehow says that meditation is about becoming zen, calm, chilled, and stopping your thoughts. And that's not what mindfulness meditation is all about. And actually working through that process can take quite a while. Mm. My friends make fun of me that uh, they say that I spend most of my day staring at a wall (laughs) 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 because because I like to sit with my thoughts sometimes and and I find staring at a white wall is a great place to help me still my mind, not still my mind, but um, they said look through the mind. Um, look at the mind mind, yeah and just allow the thoughts to just flow no judgment um and just and just see what's in there and see how i'm feeling yeah and you know waking up on the wrong side of the bed you know that that's no problem i'm okay with that um but i try to then if i'm in the office i'll try and stare at the wall for 10 minutes before i start my day (laughs) and and i find that it really does help um, it helps a lot with my focus for the rest of the day. And I think you found that with your research is that it um, helps focus times, the ability for people to focus. Absolutely. We found some of the big outcomes were increased focus, increased adaptability, increased um, perspective taking, the ability to see that your perspective is just a perspective and others have a different perspective. And so how, how does your day look? Um, you know, how do you have a morning practice that you yes. use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I meditate every morning for about half an hour or more, depending. Um, more when I can, half an hour at least, if I, if I can't. Yeah. And then, you know, I also will make an effort to stay continually mindful through the day. So I'll give myself moments of stillness quite even at two minutes here three minutes there five minutes there 
and I, I try also to um, grab opportunities to come away from the stuff that's on my mind. So walking through a garden, just stop and enjoy the garden. It doesn't take long, 30 seconds, 40 seconds, but there's tremendous refreshment from that. You know, I could get a cab to the station in, when I go to London, as I often do from my home in Cambridge. Uh, would take me, a cab would probably take 20 minutes, or I could walk 25 minutes because the traffic here is awful. Um, I'll always walk because it's an opportunity to not only grab some exercise, but also just to inhabit the body a bit more, feel myself in the space, enjoy the walk, enjoy the environment and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the athletes that I work with are mostly um, outdoor sports athletes, like skiers and snowboarders. And they are very environmentally aware. Um, I don't mean that as in recycling things. I mean as in they appreciate everything, you know, the way the sun shines through the, the leaves. Um, the way the moss is growing on a tree, yeah. um, even the way the snow sounds when they step on it. Mm. It's, it's just so refreshing to be yeah. in that environment. Yeah. And it, it can be difficult then to go to London and appreciate <laughs> the way the sun shines through the concrete or um, oh. you know, the sound of the traffic oh. Oh. and all these things. So, oh. so how, does, how does one you know, go into this... Ah, Go for the environmental okay. Okay. Um, very interesting and then bring that question. into very the interesting city. Question. Well, look, I love the mountains. Yeah? And of course, moss on trees, sound of snow, ticks all my boxes, right? But I love London too. So the water glinting on the Thames, the fa- fabulous architecture. Uh, I even love the roar of traffic because it's vitality. There's this incredible human vitality to London. It's alive, it's an organism. Uh, And yes, there are all kinds of downsides with polluted air and, you know, sometimes it's a bit overcrowded, but it's alive, it's vital, it's human, it's creative, it's cultural, and it's full of productivity. And I really rejoice in that. I mean, just looking around the city, not only fabulous architecture wherever you look, um, but you know people doing stuff, making things happen, getting stuff done, um, feeding the world. It's it's got its upsides if you look for them. Yeah, especially even the art as well. Absolutely. It's amazing street art in London. Absolutely. Yeah, beautiful place. Lots, lots of good stuff. Lots of good stuff. Yeah. So for someone who's in a busy corporate environment and maybe they're getting caught up in the stress and pressures that are on them within this work environment, what is just some basics that they can start doing today to help them? Well, look, I really need to emphasize that they would benefit massively from a bit of systematic mindfulness training. Let's just get that on the tape because I don't want the good to be the enemy of the best here. So that would be the best thing. Uh, Secondly, um, become familiar with your own body. Take a moment to notice what your body is like right now. Uh, Become aware of the sensations where your feet touch the floor. Become aware of the sensations where your body meets the chair. Um, Notice what's happening right now at your hands and fingers. How's your head? 
what, what, what's, what, what are the sensations like between your shoulders and the top of your head right now? So things like that. Just bring attention to what's, what's here. Uh, get curious about it. Get interested. One thing. The other thing is begin to notice what's happening in the world around you. And that could be like in the office right now. What's it going up to? What's it like? What's it sound like? What's it smell like? Or move over to a window. Take in the weather. Just stand there for 30 seconds looking at clouds and sky and people below perhaps in the street. Drink it in. Enjoy that just for a little while. Taking the opportunity for a break from the endless chatter in your own head. Notice that chatter. Pay attention to something else. Chatter starts up and begins to overwhelm. Notice that. Pay attention to something else. Over and over. Taking breaks. Hmm. If you have to walk to get a cup of tea, a drink of water, or go to the bathroom, notice the sensations of walking. Try to leave your phone behind. And uh, just feel what it's like to be in the space. I can really relate to that because as an athlete, you're constantly being asked, how does your body feel? How do you feel today? What's going on with your body today? As soon as you go see a physiotherapist or your trainer, those are the first questions they ask you. And you're forced in that moment to really reflect on the body and see what it needs. Yes. And something I learned very quickly was showing up to a training session and them saying, how do you feel right now? And I say, I'm knackered. Yeah. My legs are knackered. Yeah. My muscles are exhausted. Yeah. And I really dragged myself up this morning. And they say, well, you don't need to be here. Go home then and rest. Yeah. Because if I hadn't have had that trainer asking me that question, I would have done a workout. You know, I would have forced yeah, myself yeah, to, yeah. you know, the workout is in the schedule that day, yeah, so yeah, I have to yeah, do it. Yeah. But being forced to ask, how do I feel? I'm knackered. Well, I'm going home then because yeah. it's only going to help me in the future. Yes. Yes. And that's a sad fact of organizational life today is that the people don't give themselves recovery time. So... It's spot on what you said. Athletes know that the recovery time is a part of the training. And that if you don't allow yourself the time to recover from the exertion, you won't build the muscles that have been, rebuild the muscles that have been damaged in the process. You won't recover emotionally and mentally. Um, You won't rebuild your stores of energy. Unfortunately, people in organizational life think that they have an infinite resource of energy. It never needs restoration. And some of the things that people do in their breaks are surf the internet, look at social media, um, engage sometimes in extreme sports. Uh, these don't restore. They, they may be interesting, they may be engaging, they may spike your adrenaline, they may do all sorts of other things that you find desirable, they might give you a dopamine hit, but they don't help you to recover. And the result is gradual depletion over time. Which a lot of athletes know as well, when they keep push, 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 they end up being fatigued. And we see people in the corporate environment having burnouts because of that reason. Exactly. So yeah, so finding that moment to walk, to go get your cup of tea, to enjoy the walk and just have that 30 second break yes. is helping your body restore. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, also making sure that you use your weekends for recovery and use your evenings for recovery. Don't 
keep plugged in all the time. You've got to unplug from time to time, one way or another. I mean, we can measure this now. So with things like heart rate monitors that we get people to wear over time or other measurement tools, you can measure an executive's levels of fatigue and well-being and, and, and energy over time and relate that to the amount of time that they spend resting. And what you see is that people who rest from time to time and recover from time to time maintain higher levels of performance and those that don't just gradually decline. It's terrible. It's very sad. Mm. But we're sort of in a, in a culture where we're not necessarily encouraged to rest a lot of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. The culture doesn't get it yet. Not yet. Uh, it will. Mm. Especially with the scientific research that's yes. coming out as well. It's, I mean, you can't argue with the, the no. figures. No, no. <laughs> And it, it seems, when you think about it, a no-brainer. Human energy is not an infinite resource. You know, it, it needs to be built up, it gets depleted, it needs to be built up, it gets depleted, it needs to be built up. You can't just keep depleting it. Mm. Simple. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for those words of advice. And I really hope everyone in the office really takes on board what you said. And now they can get up and go enjoy a cup of tea mindfully <laughs> and enjoy their 30-second break as they go over. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, I am so calm and chilled after talking to Michael. He has one of the most relaxing energies I've ever been around, so clearly mindfulness works. You know, I started the Corporate Athlete Podcast because I am passionate about improving the well-being in the workplace. It is just such a pressurized place for us all and can cause so much stress. And there's so many tools out there that you can use, and mindfulness is one of them. So if you want to find out more information, please visit Michael's website, Mindfulness Works, or you can find him on Twitter, at The Mindfulness Guy. And of course, you can find his books on Amazon. And please read, please do more, improve your well-being, and take those steps to decrease your stress and have happier lives. Um, if you enjoyed the episode, please rate us five stars and leave a review. And of course, you can reach out to me personally on LinkedIn, Rachel Findler. I'd be happy to connect with you and get any feedback that you have about the podcast. All right. I look forward to being with you next time.